Okay, so you don't want to bum puzzle? <laughs> yeah. I, I... <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome. We are Irenacast. I'm Jeff. It's your boy, Alan. I'm Bonnie. I'm Casey. This is Rajiv. On the first and third Tuesday of every month, we bring to you our perspectives on theology and culture from a post-evangelical lens. Thank you for joining us for another conversation to provoke your progressive Christian imagination this week. We're going to get real. We're going to talk about high control religious environments or cults or, you know, jerk ass leaders or whatever. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, exactly. Uh, So we're going to we're going to talk about that. We're going to delve deep into uh, being in those situations and to to break up the the heaviness. We're going to move into a segment. One of my favorites, I think one of Alan's favorites, Mm -hmm. Apple Dash. So this is going to be this is going to be a good episode. So. Let's, let's, you know, just like we do, let's get into it. Uh, high control religious environments. That's, that sounds so technical for something so ominous. Ellen, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, this is a topic I care a lot about and something I've been giving quite a bit of thought to. I used to use the phrasing of cult or fundamentalism is how I would try to talk about kind of our realm of, of work that we do together. Like we have intersections, which deals with like kind of fleshing out personal spirituality or things that we're working through together in a group setting. And we have lots of people who come from more fundamentalistic backgrounds. But Bonnie, Bonnie got me hooked on a book, <laughs> of course. And the book, it's good. It's uh, it's kind of a pretty basic like overview for therapists about cults, kind of like how cults are encoded. And uh, the most a helpful part of the book for me was giving language to my experience. I really do believe if we don't have language for something, we don't quite have a grasp on it or like we don't see it. And I've had people come to me even the last couple of years and they want to interview me and they're asking things like, is Scientology a cult or is this church a cult or is that church a cult? And I found myself years ago saying, well, there's kind of a spectrum, I guess, and there's more cult-like environments and less cult-like environments. And for me, I was like, what does that even mean? And I think it really does come down to how much control does the group have over the individual? Even at the very outset, kind of want to say that coming into this conversation, we're going to bring a lot of assumptions as people who have grown up in like Western civilization about individualism and group identity. Obviously, these things are not the same across the entire world, but at least for us in our experience, I'm interested in the ways that our churches or our religious environments exercised control and how like agency, our own agency to determine things for ourselves played into that. There's some, we have some questions that we're going to go through and we're going to dig a little bit deep into y'all's past, if that's okay. So real quick, before we get into your questions, I just, just as like a clarifying point, I think that the word cult is a powerful one, mostly just because how it's been used and what it's typically associated with. So just as a a base for what we mean when we say cult is to move away from where people might think like, so are you saying that evangelicalism is a cult? Right. The word cult just back in the day, like in ancient times, just meant it comes from the word for like a religion. You talk talk about the the, the temple cult and it's the, the system of worship or the imperial cult. 
the system of worshiping the Roman emperors. Now cult means something definitely different. And I try to get away from that word at all. I, I like for this conversation, we're not even going to talk about cults in my mind. Like, yeah, there is a popular definition of that, but setting that to the side helps bypass all of that baggage. I, I know Bonnie, like you and I talking about high control environments, that's, that's the benefit of that term is that it kind of sidesteps that and starts to look critically at these places that we come from. And the reason there's baggage to begin with is because probably each of us was given a list of cults that you want to avoid. You don't want to have anything to do with for whatever reason, many reasons. Right. And the, you you guys, the stuff you guys were grew up in were on our cult list. What? <laughs> Really? And you know what's so you funny? Were on our cult you list. were on our cult list. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I'm sure we were. Seventh Day Venice, we're absolutely on the cult list. That's hilarious. Yeah. But- That's what I'm saying. We're, we're all engaging with people we were told are part of cults that we should never trust. Well, setting that to the side, I would like to think critically, and for listeners who are thinking critically about their background, maybe they can't put their finger on what about their religious experience really bothers them and they haven't, you know, in the midst of deconstructing theology be like the theology behind the theology, right? Like the, the process of uh, religious encoding or spirituality for me, control is kind of the conversation before the conversation. It's not just about the, what, but like the, how is the, what to me. So maybe for them, it would be, if you're a listener, you're listening, maybe for you, it would be helpful to think through your experience like this. So I want to ask you all, would you describe your former religious environment as having a low or high element of control? And what about your experience made it that way? I didn't know I was in a high control environment until I started watching Unbreakable with Kimmy Schmidt. Like, you know, this is this is a Netflix show about a group of women that are held in an underground bunker. You know, it's a comedy, but it's also got this tra- very tragic elements to it. And so, you know, you're engaged because it's a great cast. It's a great script and it's an engaging storyline. Then I'm like, oh, my God, some of the stuff, Kimmy, who escapes the cult uh, in this underground bunker, the stuff that she's coping with in trying to transition into living into the broader world in New York City was like even though like I grew up in the Washington DC area but having such a cloistered environment where you only socialize with other seventh day adventists um you might work with people from different parts of the globe and ideologically and physically but you only socialized and trusted other seventh day adventists including family members you know like if somebody in my nuclear family was like no we're we're not going to do this. We're going to stop going to church. <laughs> I mean, it would be like, I can't even imagine the upheaval from something just that simple. Like if at 15, we were like, I'm not going to church. I don't know. I don't know what would have happened. And my parents are great people. It's just a weird, you know, we're, you're all stuck. You're all stuck in that mindset. So I was just shocked by the similarities that I went through as to what Kimmy Schmidt was going through in the show. Like, wow, that's really disturbing. I know for me, um, somewhere along the line, I think it was in my late twenties and very much entrenched in, in the seventh Adventist world and felt very sorry for lots of other people who were in such high control environments. 
and thought that my world was the, you know, the one, the true world, the path of liberation. And I came across this book called Infidel by A.N. Hershey Ali, which is a Somali, maybe you've heard of it. It's a um, it's really autobiography. Good. It's really good. Yeah. Of a Somali born woman who immigrated to Holland. And unfortunately, her book has been used to fuel Islamophobia. Um, so it's a comp, it's a complicated book, but she describes her experience as a woman born in Somalia, about the same age as me, like worlds away from my experience. And yet, as I was reading her book and the way her community was controlling her every move, the way it controlled the way she thought and her body, I began to relate to her in ways that were like really disturbing to me. And I would say probably it, it it's that relationship I had with this person who was writing this book, who or who wrote the book that helped lead me out of thinking that my way was the right way. And instead of being able to name Seventh-day Adventism and the particular brand that I grew up in as spiritually repressive, oppressive, maybe even abusive. Yeah, that was the word that um, I wrote down was abuse. So how many of us would listen to our friends walk up to us and say, my partner told me that if I talk to anybody but them, they would they would disown me, right? How many of us would tell our friends to stay in any relationship like that? <laughs> Nobody will love you like like I do, right? I think that for me, where where that high control played out was, um, I mean, especially we've talked about this, but I think it was it was most certainly around our bodies in terms of like purity culture, having to share very intimate information about ourselves to other peers to to adults, but they wanted full control of our bodies. They wanted to know what we were doing, what we were thinking, who we were spending our time with. And all of that was labeled under accountability and purity. Can, can we like, can we jump on that and like continue talking about it? The, like all of these uh, environments that I'm reading about and studying privileged information is a way to control someone. If you have like that's a common thing. If you have the info about someone's life, it, it like prevents them from being able to leave or cause you have all of these, like literally there are some religions that keep files on people of all of the stuff that they've confessed. And if they ever leave, it's like a kill switch. All of that stuff now gets to be exposed to the wider world. And so it's a way of, I never thought about confession being a way to control somebody, <laughs> but now like, I, I mean, I even see it like in, in relationships. When you give someone information, you're giving them power in your life. And I never like really even thought about it that way. I can't tell you the stories of queer folks I know who've went with their family to like Christmas Eve service. And in the middle of the service, the sermon dramatically changes to talking about homosexuality. And the pastor's basically looking directly at the family member who's not even a part of this community. Right? Like that information isn't just used on on the person that is that is actively you know participating but then it is like enforced on on the people around them and and, and so that that's for me some of the, the the tough stuff about this is like it's not even outright sometimes it's like indirect methods of control 
It's not like the pastor's coming to your house and saying, and sometimes this does happen. The pastor comes into your house and says, you can have sex with this person. You can't have sex with that person, right? That does happen. But more often, it's kind of the environment that is created around you to control what your actions are like. So it's kind of more indirect, and you can wash your hands of being a controlling religious presence. But yeah, Casey, the, the idea that it's controlling bodies, I think is, I think a lot of people can relate to that coming out of their churches. Yeah. And it's, it's, um, it's very skewed that that whole thing is controlling bodies unless you're a straight male body, because then you can abuse people. You can sexually abuse people in the church if you're a straight male leader. And then somehow that holding that person accountable is going against what God really wants because you're going to break up the family. You're going to bring controversy to the church. But if you're a queer person or a woman or a girl, then you're, you know, you're ridden out on a rail and, and vilified. So there's, there's a real uh, difference there. And, and to me, it's, it's alarming and it continues. I mean, it's pretty rampant still. Yeah, it, it really is. I just read a book called um, How We Fight for Our Lives by Saeed Jones. I highly recommend it to all of you. And uh, they touch on on both these issues. Um, he grew up, his mom was Buddhist, um, but his grandmother was very fundamentalist Christian. And he talks about the summer that he went to stay with his grandma, and every Sunday he was introduced as, this is my grandson, his mother is a Buddhist. And as a young person, he didn't know what that had to do with anything until the very last Sunday before he was to go back and, you know, go back to his mom. And the altar call is is called, and he's literally dragged to the front. Grandma's holding his hand, and he thinks that she's just being sweet. Until the next thing he knows, he's being dragged to the front of the church to be prayed for, whether he wants it or not. And there was this clear distinction about what his grandma was wrapped up in, you know? And I think that's so true for all of us. How many times did we take our friends to church, you know, with this double intention of like, because that's what we were told to do. This is how you save your friends. This is how you bring them into the fold. If you really care about them. And that capitalizes on all the energy of a friendship and of a relationship. It like, it's, constantly using all the energies in your life for the purpose of serving the cult or serving the high control environment. I hate it when it comes to family. Like the fact that I grew up thinking my grandparents who are Catholic are going to hell and praying for them and things like that. It like objectifies these people who are supposed to be really like, I don't know, intimate parts of your life instead of objects of like a project or something that children are encouraged to work on. Like it's right. Yeah. That's horrifying. How about you, Jeff? So, like, being a attendee, I guess, going to youth group, I really didn't even think twice about it. I don't know if you guys know this or not, but I tend to be a private person, and I'm not an overshare. I don't know if that's obvious or anything. That's why uh, we work together. <laughs> what? Because I share for everybody. That's shocking. Uh, so, I, you know, I was never one to offer any confession or pray out loud or share with the group. You know, I went, I had my group of friends and that was it. But it was when I started getting involved in leadership that light bulbs starting to go off, uh, especially in my first like full-time position as a youth minister. I was in a fairly large church and 
you could see it all over the place. Strong leadership was code for controlling leadership from the top down. And, you know, you could say, and then, you know, some people would say, well, yeah, that's micromanaging or whatever. But no, I think that you can have quote unquote strong leadership or controlling leadership through delegation as well, depending upon how loyal your servants are. And uh, I experienced a lot of that as well. And I started seeing these little things and it was like, is this really about the bigger picture or is it about maintaining a status quo and every decision that's being made in that is to maintain that status quo. And I think one of the big revelations for me was when I was, uh, it was at my last youth pastor position and I was doing my regular follow-up, you know, student hadn't come for a couple of weeks. They were brand new. I'm going to give them a call, find out how things are going. So I called this one young woman I was like, hey, you know, this is this is Pastor Jeff. How's it going? Haven't seen you a little bit. And she kind of sighed. And she's like, I'm just going to be straight with you. <laughs> and I said, please, by all means, be straight with me. Uh, she said, I started going to another uh, youth group. I really like it better there. I was like, that's no problem. I'm great. Like, great. I'm glad you found another place. And and she's like, really? You're not upset? And I was like, no, why would I? Why would I be upset? You know, you're always welcome, but you know, it wasn't, and it was this, it really sat on that for like two months, that little conversation with that young woman, because it was, it was revealing something to me about the structure that I think a lot of this control that we have, I think in any organization, but you know, my, the organization that I'm most familiar with is the evangelical church is that it's, it's inherent in the structure. And I think Alan, when you talked about this whole idea of things and you read this book and it gave you words for that. I think that was a moment that gave me a specific experience for what this structure does if we're, if we just take it for granted. I think if we take any structure for granted and it reminds me of even like as a parent, another light bulb has gone off in terms of like so many times parents gauge their skill as a parent with how well behaved their children are, right? Which goes back to control and seeing as a youth pastor, seeing how parents Gauged whether their student was in the right place was all about obedience and control. And then it was a real light bulb for me in the sense that I had to reevaluate as a leader. Like, where am I doing this? And there were a lot of places where I was totally doing that because I took the structure for granted and I wasn't being self-accountable. I wasn't being introspective. I wasn't really looking at my motives in, in a real way. So for me, like these high control environments, I feel like, you know, where where are we um, complicit in how we participate in it and maintain it? And are we willing to call it out because you're calling out a structure? You're speaking truth to power. But you, do, you, do you feel like you didn't have, there weren't any personal ramifications or in, in, from growing up in, in those environments? Oh, that's a, uh, that's not something I'm willing to share. No, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no you know what? I, I don't know. I, I'm really I'm actually filtering through that in a big way because uh, I don't know if I ever allowed myself. I don't I don't know if I ever trusted anyone to give any kind of control over me. And it it was maybe I think maybe the rhetoric influenced my internal life. But I uh, I had contentious relationships with all leadership as long as I was in any church. And um it's a personal issue, but uh, it also benefited me a little bit, maybe from from having any kind of manipulation directed towards me, which I had seen people manipulated directly because of, because of what we what Casey was talking about, where you're sharing and you're giving information. Because uh, I learned that from an early age that uh, if I give, and this was just more of like family upbringing, but if I give too much information, it's going to be used against me. So I'm not giving you any information. 
Rajiv, I think that that's a really great question that we all could probably sit with. How did this impact your internal world? I find that a lot of that is coming up in my own life as we think about the idea of us against the world. Who are we to trust? It's us against the world, right? So I wasn't just getting that at church, but my dad is bipolar and and was unmedicated most of my life. And so his own paranoia is about us versus them. I just read um, Educated. That's another great book with a young woman. Jose and I and my best friend were driving to Oregon uh, recently. And I realize or she talks about the exit strategy when you know when the feds come or the end of the world comes and you need to run there's an exit strategy and where to meet up and jose was like that's such a weird concept like who does that and i was like wait not every family has like a has like a exit strategy for the end of the world so so that that was like a dual thing in my life, right? It was happening at church and it was happening at home. And so I've had to spend a lot of time beginning to unpack who is us? What does that even mean? You know, and why do I always live with fear um in terms of trusting systems? Because I don't, because church taught me not to and my home environment didn't. And the second piece is around shame. I'll stop talking, but but I would love to hear you all talk about that. You know, I mean, the difference between guilt and shame, guilt is you're sorry for the things that you've done. Shame is you're sorry for who you are. And I think that high control environments certainly, absolutely, 100% um, evoke shame in you to control you. Yeah, one of the one of the classic markers of an environment like that is having an enemy. You have to have an enemy to define the group. And a lot of us, it was the world. I was told routinely that I loved the world too much because I loved like reading Thoreau or looking at art <laughs> or something and how like I loved the world too much. Be careful about that. Uh, but the end prime enemy number one in my congregation growing up as like a neo Calvinist was ourselves by far. The self was the enemy in every respect. And I think that's where the shame comes in. You know, that you yourself are your enemy. You are the enemy to be fought, to be controlled, to be opposed. And it took me a long time to let go of that kind of adversarial relationship with my own self. And that's right. That's right. It's kind of a, a mind trip. They teach us not to trust ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Right. I can't tell you how many people I have conversations with who are like, is it okay to want something? Is it okay to have my own thoughts? And it's like, yeah, I, I mean, I've been there before. Like, not thinking that it's okay to even feel what I'm feeling is what kind of was inculcated in us. And Jeff, you, you mentioned, like, what attracted you to Christianity was some of the nurturing that, you know, that you maybe didn't get at home. And I think for a lot of people who get into high-control environments, they're not born into it, but actually enter into them. It's at these moments in our lives where we're vulnerable very vulnerable. And we're looking for some of the things that we need that we maybe don't have. And the attractive thing about high control religion religions is they already have like the answers prepackaged are ready for you. Like I don't have to weather the, the existential angst of being a human being, like all of the burden of what it means to suffer, of what it means to like not know about the future. All of that is solved for you, right? Like, you know, your meaning, you know, what's going to happen in the world. You like, you know, why suffering exists and all of those things are solved. And so I think 
leaving those environments, you're le- it's hard to describe this to people who have not been through it. But when you leave those environments, you're leaving all of that comfort and facing a harsh, horrible reality of the actual world that you maybe haven't before. Uh, f- for me, since we're all kind of answering the question, when it became real for me and I realized I was in a high control environment was when I started preaching as a youth pastor. I mimicked the way that my church preached really well. Like I even, you know, hand motions, ways of speech, things like that. And it worked. It really worked to preach for 40 minutes to get people into a state of kind of passive sort of openness to ideas to just bring them into themselves without really critically thinking about it. And at the same time, I was studying teaching methodology and like Aristotelian questions and, you know, some of the John Milton, some of the like early teachers, uh, in the, in the last hundred years who are talking about teaching methodology being less about content and more about building critical thinkers. And for me, working with youth, I realized what I was doing was not building critical thinkers, but like just kind of creating passive people. We talked about learned helplessness. Bonnie, you and I were talking about that yes. in, the, mm-hmm. in the context of this book. Learned mm-hmm. helplessness is the idea that uh, the expectation that outcomes are not controllable, that you don't have a part to play, you don't have agency, and you're, you're learning that, you know, your helplessness is normal. And I think that happens in, in preaching. And so I realized what I really wanted to do with students was ask them questions, like let them explore, let them kind of like do some of this work in the midst of preaching. And I moved in that direction. And uh, realized that most of the preaching in my background was the total opposite. So I actually have like a YouTube playlist now of high control speech patterns. And there are actually like speech patterns that trigger things in your brain to shut it off, to uh, to caricaturize an enemy, to present other points of view as if they were just completely illogical and stupid and like creating scarecrows of them. And it's things that you probably haven't heard in a long time, but it's it's like uh it's demeaning and patronizing and infantilizing a lot of this preaching. It would be forty minutes every single week of getting this kind of infantilizing content. So it became real for me when I started doing it myself and realizing that's not something I'm interested in. I, I, Alan, I think it's really powerful when we recognize our own like how we participate in the system, not just in the ways that we are recipients of being in a high control environment, but also how we persist, uh, participate. Part of the definition of learned helplessness is also like this belief that you can't act on your own behalf, that you're just unable. You have to always go out and seek wisdom, advice, approval, uh, because the agent is almost completely gone or or the idea is to try to remove the agent from the equation. And and that is like profoundly impactful. I mean, you think about even the phrase, I'll pray for you. You think about how like that seems so innocuous, so gentle, so caring, so loving. But when used in an environment like a high control religious environment, it can be like a dagger of shame, of like making sure you know what where where your place is. Yeah. And then when you try to leave, 
and try to claim oneself in the process of leaving, it's like you're saying, Alan, it's, it's so huge. You're leaving, you're leaving certainty, you're leaving everything, and you're finally differentiating oneself from, it's like you're finally growing up. And that's really hard. It's really hard. Yeah, I mean, we, we like kind of culturally look at people who leave these environments and kind of laugh or think it's funny or whatever. But there are people who like have never had a checking account, never filed taxes, do not understand some of the basic stuff about life because they were actively told not to participate in like the system or whatever. So I've even heard people say they're scared to cross the road. They feel like God's going to strike them dead if they leave this environment. So that kind of fear of existential crisis mixed with like more of the pragmatic learned helplessness is it's a huge project. If you're coming out of this and you're realizing it for the first time, like it's a long road. It's a long, lonely road because you're losing all of your contacts. So to get people around you who just affirm your own agency, some of the basic stuff, like that's, that's gold. Um, and that's kind of what some of our work is that we do together. Yeah, you know the the existential part, Alan, that you referred to a couple of times. You're as humans, we're supposed to start embarking on that journey in adolescence, and in these high control groups, that just you know everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine. So we don't work out those parts of ourselves. And then folks who who begin to wonder as they get older, and we've all worked with these folks, and whether it be in intersections or one on one. And to see, you know, I, my own pain going through that process of being like, what, you know, how it just like shame for not having known better grief and agony at lost time, the, the loss of potential relationships. And then I don't know about the rest of you, but there are times where as we accompany folks through some of these processes that we've, we've kind of gone through ourselves, um, it it reconnects me to that same pain and grief, and I just feel so heavy. And like there there are times where I've, you know, on on my own have cried for people, not not like out of pity, but just what they're going through is so hard. It's so hard, you know. And and it it's just part of the journey out. You know, you can't avoid it. Otherwise, you're not out. It's interesting for me as we're talking about this. Like I'm just flooded with conversation after conversation when I was a youth pastor and how uh, a big part of this structure that allows this cycle to happen is how we handled youth ministry, you know, and it was control. And when you control, you squash adolescence. So you prolong that adolescence when they get into college and they're out of the covering of that. And we always talked about, I remember when we were having youth pastor meetings is how are we going to address this gap of like 18 to 30 when the students leave, but when do they come back? They come back when they start having families, when they're in need to control they go back to the source of what controlled them and said, well, maybe it wasn't so bad. And they go back to it. And it's kind of this weird cycle where evangelicalism is somewhat like ignorant to the fact that it's working. <laughs> you know, it may just be like a gap, but they're bringing people back because of that, that control that happened once they're in need of that same thing. I think that's, that's fascinating. I don't, that's not academic or anything. That's just uh, my personal musings that as I'm listening to you. <laughs> fascinating observation that I never thought of until you just said that. Right. Cause I remember sitting down and like, 
you know, because when I first started, apologetics was big for me. Like I wanted to know why I wanted the right answers. I wanted to argue like I made a Jehovah's Witness cry at my community college because I and that was a mark of honor or something. it was. And I felt good about that at the time. Because I was, I was, I was going to college. I was going to the evil place and I was, you know, engaging secularism and I was, I was winning. I was fighting the good fight and I was winning and blah, 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 all that too. stuff. Exactly. <laughs> God's not dead is my autobiography. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, really like we, we push so hard and, and I think because our, again, these are just amusing, but because our country is so, traditional at its core in a lot of different ways maybe maybe part of the reason that uh just in general and why adolescence is prolonged in addition obviously to the economy and all the other factors but i think maybe it's the way that we did youth ministry because i i find i'm hard pressed and that may be just where i grow up but i'm hard pressed to find someone that did not have an experience in youth group at least going to youth group once it's it's fascinating to me yeah, and that that youth group experience that's even uh, transcends oftentimes religious boundaries, because we train. You know, we were we grew up being trained, and we trained others to like reach out to the you know to the the heathens at your high school. You know, if they're Hindus or Buddhist or Muslim, you know, reach out to them, invite them to youth group. Maybe they'll fall in love with Jesus. I also think it's worth saying that high control environments are not just religious. That there are, they exist outside of of some of the religions and outside of evangelicalism, family structures, government. It depends on kind of where you're at and what what institutions you belong to. So it's not just a religious thing; it's something that happens. And I feel like we need messaging not just from school, but also from 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 uh, these really important institutions to our lives, like church and family. That like. Yeah, like you are a worthy human being to add your part to like what what it means to be human. Your agency is sacred and matters. Like we need parents who tell that to their children, who ask them what they think. Bonnie has done great work with raising spiritual children. And I love some of the like the explorative stuff that lets us build our sense of self. That's a good thing. And I think some people are still wrestling with, is that a good thing? Should I have a sense of self? And it's, yeah, yeah, you should. Like, we are all interconnected in a way that if you're becoming, now I'm using process theology, we should stop. But like, if you're becoming, <laughs> if you're becoming, can we, can we use that as the uh, <laughs> opener, the cold opener, please? <laughs> yeah, if your becoming is wrapped up in mine, like, it's, you have your agency matters so much. I don't know. I want to like get on a, a preaching box for those who are listening who are still going through it. But before be- before we do that, I did want to cover one thing, and that is what Bonnie. How do you pronounce the last name? Bonnie Zeman. Zeman. Yeah, I think so. Um, cracking the cult code for therapists talks about after effects yeah. of growing up in these environments, and has throughout the book kind of identified some of these after effects. And if you're listening or for you all, maybe you can see some of it reflected in your own life. One huge light bulb for me was that in some of the post-evangelical circles I move in, people almost seem like they go through phases of narcissism where they're just so focused uploading 
pictures of their bodies, you know, because they've never been able to express themselves as a body. So they'll, they'll post pictures or they'll, they'll constantly, they'll take a neogram, Casey, they'll get to like know about their personality and then it will all become about them for like a period of time. And instead of looking at this as quote unquote narcissistic or bad, we can start to see that this is a way of building a self that was denied to someone, absolutely denied. And that this is essential, mm-hmm. helps us deal with empathy. Yeah, absolutely. And it, that is the work of differentiating is to really form the self so that one can see oneself, right, as a separate entity, but in relationship to all the other selves that are out there. It, it is interesting to to see a person who may be, you know, post-adolescent in age, but still needing to go through some of those developmental milestones. And you can't deny yourself those developmental processes. They ha- it has to be, it's, it's the path for, for growing up and for finding new worlds. Um, yeah, so- I've heard it said that you have to build a strong ego to transcend it, to like get beyond it, to incorporate it into something totally different and move beyond some of the egoic structure. And you have to befriend the ego. Yeah. I mean, who's ever, you know... How often have we been told that we need to just put that thing down, you know, keep it in check? Christ esteem, not self-esteem. Yes. Stuff like that. I wonder, um, I actually wonder, there should be research around coming out and this experience that you're talking about, Alan, because, um, there's, there's sort of a joke in, in at least gay cisgender culture, uh, that, Lots of gay men have uh, what they call Neverland syndrome, this idea that they never want to grow up. And and a lot of it comes from this idea that they never had an adolescence. Like, we didn't get to um, have all the experiences um, that help us become a self until much later, you know? So So then there's like this desire to never grow up, to never be fully formed. So I I would be really interested to to do more research in that because it it's there it's so clear it's interesting what happens when you spend so much of your life not being able to really clearly get a grasp on who you are. So there is building the self uh, that's an after effect like the need for it. Uh, there's coping with trauma or the trauma that we've caused. We've talked on this show about trauma that we have caused and how we are sorry for that, but that's something we carry inside of us still and needs to be addressed. Uh, sometimes new skills need to be developed, like making friends. Holy crap. I can't tell you how many people were homeschooled and told that the world was the enemy and they shouldn't make friends. And the fact that they like have arrived at adulthood and they're like, oh my God, I don't really have a support, supportive community. They have to learn the skill of that or the skill of a checking account or like just basic stuff like that. And probably the most important for me is this need to contextualize experiences to understand what happened to them, what to understand what happened to us, to be able to speak it and kind of know what it's like in the bigger context of, of living. And I, and I kind of hear all of you saying that in different ways. I didn't understand what I was in until this, or I couldn't speak it until this. And if we can't contextualize that, like, Grief, Reggie, we talked about that sadness, like say, yeah, it sucked. It was bad. I did grow up in this and it was this. That's a powerful step into healing from some of the the effects of being in that environment. And I think, too, that coming to terms with the facts that, that these really nice people in your life 
maybe wanted to control you. I don't mean like assign blame, but come to terms with the, yeah, contextualize is a good word, Alan, but come to terms with this idea that we were victims. There was, there was a kind of victimhood and being angry about that is maybe part of the first step in being able to grieve. So I, I would just say to anybody listening who's feeling angry right now, feel angry. It's okay to feel angry. That is a human emotion that's absolutely uh, allowed you as you go through this process. And you may have been told that love doesn't include things like anger or self, that you have to give up yourself to love someone, and it's not true. You can love your family, you can love the church you came from, and still be pissed off and still move through this differentiation. One, one other thing we didn't talk about in ways of controlling environments is the control of information. Like if you think about how you grew up, at least for me, there's a sense that if you can control what information someone has access to, you can, can kind of control their their world. And I routinely hear people say, I never knew there were Christians who believed in evolution. I never knew there were Christians who were gay and who were completely like integrated in a community. I never knew. And, and what I always tell like myself when I hear those things is like, that's because there was a reason you didn't know. It was structured that way so that you would never bump into that info. And I'll share one experience, but I'd like to hear if you guys experienced the, you people, you all experienced control of information. But I remember being in my, my Bible college, master's college, walking across like a crosswalk, holding a, the big red book of N.T. Wright. Jeff, you know, the community of God or whatever, the big N.T. Wright book. I loved it back then because it was like introducing me to story and it was wonderful, but I'm holding it and someone sees me from so far away. And for some reason can see what book I'm holding. And he yells out, he's a seminary student. I'm an undergrad. He's like, why are you reading that trash? Like from across the, you know, the, the street. And I was like, uh, I, I don't remember what I said, probably something snarky, but I realized, uh, there was this sense of you didn't read certain books. And you probably from more Pentecostal backgrounds heard like Satan will give you a foothold. Don't read things that might disagree with with your theology. And that's a way of controlling information. And I would say not just controlling information, but controlling one's ability to build the webs in your brain that enable you to think and with different worldviews. Because like if you don't know about evolution until you're an adult you have to go back and like reconstruct an entire process of thinking about the world and how it works. And that can be really daunting. I mean, that was my experience. I just, you know, I, I learned about evolution like on TV and in places and every single time it came or like at a museum and every single time it came up, there was always somebody around me to say, we don't believe that. Just keep, just remember that the world can't be that old. Dinosaurs didn't live that long ago. You know, just it was always this like check in control, uh, controlling information, which I would say then leads to controlling one's ability to have those networks in the brain to be able to think with different worldviews. I mean, I, I remember, you know, I, w I went through Seventh Day Adventist schools, K through 12, and actually K through 16, got my undergrad at a Seventh Day Adventist school. And it wasn't until Bonnie started taking some classes. I think at the community college, we were just, we were well into our professions. We had kids. 
And she was like, hey, did you know about this Epic of Gilgamesh? And I'm like, no, what's that? And it's the Flood story. And I'm like, what the? And yeah, it's actually like older than the Flood story in the Bible. I'm like, no, it's not. You know, that whole thing. And it was just eating away at me and eating away at me. And then I talked to a friend who went to Seventh-day Adventist Seminary, but chose not to be a minister for various reasons, but was an educator like like I was. And I asked him, I said, hey, do you know about this Epic of Gilgamesh? And he goes, yeah, they teach it to us in seminary, but tell us to keep it away. And I was like, (laughs) I mean, that that was almost, that was part of my like, okay, that's it. I'm, I'm done. There's, I've, there's stuff out there that I don't know. And I don't like not knowing. And I don't, at that point I was like, and I don't think God likes me not knowing. So I'm going to go out there and try to find out some stuff. I, I grew up in a denomination. I wouldn't say valued education. I mean, you could be a pastor without really doing anything. But what they did do was that they created their own institutions for licensing and education. And that was that was the big thing. Um, I mean, personally, I never experienced a lot of people telling me, maybe in my experience of Pentecostalism, not people telling me, not, don't read this or don't do that. But it was more about experience, like don't be a part of this or don't go to this place or be with these people. Um, but, it, but then later realizing like the biggest thing for me when I decided I was going to be a youth pastor, everyone was like, you need to go to the denomination college. You need to go to the denomination college. And uh, fortunately I don't like to listen to people. So I decided not to go to my denomination college. And that was, that was like a huge, huge big step for me to be in a place where it's like, no, read everything, like explore, look at these things. Yeah. So I think it, that's another thing is that we create our own or they, well, we do, we all do. We create our own educational, educational institutions and then pit it against the other ones. And that's, I mean, we can see the results of that all over the place. I'd really own for myself that like God's not scared of the truth. You know, like I'd like start really simple. Whatever was true when I was born is probably still true now. And like God's not afraid of that. And me learning something is not going to piss God off. And if the Bible's true or Christianity's true or whatever, quote unquote true, I think about truth in totally different terms now. But it, it, if it's true, it, it doesn't need to be even be defended. You know what I mean? It can be in the, the marketplace of ideas. And and that's okay, right? Just just the idea of a marketplace of ideas, <laughs> right? It's like you know, minds blown. To kind of close out the the conversation, I mean, we could talk about this for so many more episodes, right, Bonnie? Are you with yes, me on absolutely. this? Absolutely, I'm yes. with you. I'm actually thinking about doing like research on this professionally in a degree co- coming up. So I, I'm just so excited. I guess I guess my my, my question is more practical. If if someone's listening to this and it is coming out of a high control religious environment, what would you tell them? What's one thing? Obviously, there's so many things that that they should probably do or have to do, but what's one thing that you would give advice as a friend? Get therapy. First of all, first of all, get therapy. Not Christian therapy. Not Christian therapy, right. And second of all, how do we confront our biggest fears? We confront them. Do your own research. When when people say, don't do this or don't look there, don't ask these questions, 
I would invite you to begin to look in those places, open those doors, ask those questions. I think we've all at some point today said, like, we had these major revelations around information that we did not know, which led us down rabbit holes, right? (laughs) Um, Which eventually led to healing. So confront the fears, ask the good questions, find people that are willing to hold the space for you, and get fucking therapy. I would say if you are questioning whether or not you have grown up in a high control religious environment, you're, you know, you're in a place where you can begin to critically think and analyze what's going on with you. And um, I would say follow those questions, you know, just follow the questions. Don't let any question be off limits to you. Follow every question, even the question of God. If that's a question you have, follow that question and let it lead you. Um, I think somebody newly coming out, you know, kind of questioning, transitioning out of these high control places, you're not crazy. There's nothing that you're doing that's wrong. There are others who've gone through similar things. And a book that, depending on where they are, a book that was helpful to me. It's an, it's a far from perfect book, but it was comforting to know that other people had gone through stuff that was similar. It was five stages of the soul. It was really helpful in my my journey out to like latching onto something else real, which was ultimately me. Um. So yeah, you're not crazy. You're you're doing exactly what you should. I feel like we have a freaking Oprah's book club thing going on here. Like we, <laughs> we seriously could come up with our own like book club list. We're always quoting books. Yeah. Yeah. We have a good list for this one. I, I would say, and I've given this like literal advice to someone. I would say during your next quiet time, leave your Bible at home, take your laptop, type in at the top of Google signs of domestic abuse, find a good list, and then Reflect on your experience in your church and ask, is my church doing these things that an abusive spouse might do? And then just go from there and follow your gut. Yeah, the, I, I've, I've used the abuse cycle as, as an illustration. Yeah, it's, it's horrifying how parallel they are. It absolutely is. I think it gets better by hearing you all say that. I'm like, the process doesn't really end. You're carrying that trauma and that need for growth kind of throughout your life. A lot of us are. So I think hearing all of that again, it just feels so good. And one advice I, I give to people is that your world is so big now, like your, your world has just exploded and you're thinking all these huge things, these really consequential things. You might lose family. You might lose a job. You might have to like rethink whether, you know, the future is what you thought it would be all kinds of stuff. I always tell people to start low and slow, like get reconnected to your body. However you have to do that, like sit down and breathe and listen to yourself breathing or some of the more autonomic, you know, nervous system stuff. If you're really in the midst of it right now and you, you're listening to this episode and you like just immediately are leaving, like people will even like tap their forearms or like, you know, tap different parts of their face to kind of just get reconnected to, to your body. Because if you're going to go through this, process of rebuilding a self a self start like where you literally exist your breathing and then kind of work out from there because it can get too big too fast it's good oh, this whole conversation reminds me of that meme that's been going around from that episode of hot ones with paul rudd where he's like look at us 
look at us. Who would have thought? And he's like, not me. Like, we're just, look where we've come. Look how far we've, we've gone. And, uh, I, I think when all is said and done, I think that's my hope for everyone listening is that they can get to the place where they stop and they're like, look at us. Look, look how much, look how much we've grown. Look at where we are. And uh, let that be kind of our, our goal and our mantra. Not that to say that the stories end, but to acknowledge where the story's taken us thus far. Let us know what you think. Uh, add your voice to this particular conversation and comment in the show notes at irenicast.com slash 159. Also in the show notes, you'll find relevant links and a complete list of all the other ways to like, follow, and contact the show. That's irenicast.com slash 159. On the other side of the music, we are going to uh, play a little game of Apple Dash. And this will be enjoyable and fun. And information be damned. So Apple Dash, this is one of my favorites, and basically what it is, it's a it's a meshing of the game Boulder Dash and Apples to Apples, where each of us have come up with a word, a real word, that has probably an obscure definition, it has to be sur- s- sort of obscure because we don't want the other people to guess, but Boulder Dash, your, your objective is to try to guess what the actual word means, but Apples to Apples, it's you're guessing which card that person is going to pick. So this is a, a psychological experiment, so to speak, to learn the personalities of our hosts and find out what appeals to our funny bone or lack of funny bone, depending upon <laughs> where we may be at. So uh, how it's going to work is each of us have come up with a word. We're going to present that word to the other hosts, and then the hosts will give their definition of that word, real or fake. And then the person presenting the word will determine the winner. Uh, I'm going to so, keep score this time. Of course you are. Of course you are. <laughs> Alan is going to keep score. And since he volunteered to keep score, uh, Casey, would you, would you be willing to go first? Yes. Um, my word is bum fuzzle. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. I so thought you were going to say something else. <laughs> Could you spell that please, Alex? B U M F U Z Z L E. Just like it sounds. <laughs> I'm going to say it's a. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> I'm going to say it's a product like Nair that uh, helps you muzzle the hair on your bum. You know, all the fuzz. <laughs> so you use it and it removes the hair on your butt. <laughs> okay. My my definition it, it it is it is the hair on your bum. Aww, <laughs> it's a one up me. <laughs> Man, y'all y'all took my. I'm just gonna stick with what I was gonna go to because I'm kind of along those lines. But it is a derogatory term used among body waxers to talk about someone who's a little out of control in that particular area. They are a bum fuzzle. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Uh, I got the bum fuzzle coming in at three o'clock today. <laughs> exactly. Right. It's, ri- it's written in the appointment book. <laughs> I think it's a verb. It's it's a kind of dance. A bum fuzzle. It's, it's a dirty dance. <laughs> it's a dirty dance. Oh my goodness. <laughs> oh my God. Bonnie, you look. Oh, that's a good one. 
But I, I think I'm going to go with Jeff. I, I think the idea of being able to call shade, right? <laughs> that bum fuzzle, right? That's, that feels so. I feel I honored that. that I was able to transcend your bias towards Bonnie and, uh, <laughs> and win that one. I know, one. that was hard. It was really hard. Okay, so you don't want to bum fuzzle? <laughs> yeah. I, I... <laughs> oh my goodness, that's great. <laughs> yeah, I think so, do you want to say do... dirty dancing was worth it. <laughs> yeah, that's we just right. move from comedy to seduction in like a turn of a. <laughs> Uh, so the defin so I'm giving this to Jeff, and the definition though is to be confused or perplexed mm. or flustered. You are bum puzzled. Bum puzzled. Yeah. And that actually makes a lot of sense. It does. I might start using that bum puzzled. I'm gonna tell my daughters I'm bum puzzled right now. <laughs> <laughs> Please oh. do. I would love to. They, they'll be like mortified. Like, what does that mean? What What are you saying? All right, the the new challenge is to use it in your sermon, those of you who are preaching. <laughs> right. Send us a clip of you using this I will, word I will do that. in your sermon. That would be amazing. And if you're a listener and you use bum fuzzle I, I in think your that sermon. should if you do like those uh the responsive readings, throw it in there. <laughs> Everyone's like, right. Lord, we are bum fuzzled at all the injustice right. in the world. That's Everyone's right. Like, That's what right. The? <laughs> you can hear everybody like get to that point and be like, uh, what? Uh, <laughs> That's amazing. There'll be some kind of reward. If you send it in and you record yourself doing that, we will, I'm going to come up with some kind of reward. It sounds ominous coming from me. Alan's going to give you a, a prize. I will send <laughs> an sticker to you. Yes, I will, I will send you either a coffee cup or a sticker. All right. Bonnie, how about you? Do you what's, what's your word? Oh, my word follows this nicely. The word is sack butt. Sack butt? <laughs> sack butt? Sack butt. Could you spell it, please? It's pronounced sack butt. I think sack it's... Butte. Spelled S A G B U T. Okay, I got this one. I'm going to go first before anyone steals my thunder. Uh, this is uh, another derogatory term for what happens as you age and your butt begins to drop a bit. It it is an egregious hemorrhoid. Uh, it's the name for the person who's last in a marathon, who's like trying to keep up with everyone. They're the the sack butt. <laughs> <laughs> if you're holding the party back and you walk too slow and everyone's like trying to go from bar to bar and we're dragging you along, you're the sack butt. They're slow. Wait, are you talking about a marathon or a pub crawl? That's either one. Okay. Whatever. It's the person who's last. The person who's last. Okay. Is the sack butt. So my idea was um, this is a gay derogatory term for someone who spends a lot of time uh, um, <laughs> offering up their butt. <laughs> so they would be the collep- collector collector right so they would be the sack butt oh my goodness these are hard to pick from none of them are terribly flattering um, <laughs> um i'm gonna i i am gonna go with um alan's the last yeah. the last she'll be first and the so first that's actually last. i played that to you because i knew that you would feel <laughs> compassion and empathy for the person for the sack butt. The that's so funny oh. but oh. a real sack but do you want to know what it is yes yes it's a type of trombone from the renaissance and baroque eras 
It's characterized by a telescopic slide that is used to vary the length of the tube to change pitch. So Casey was kind of close. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> that's right, that's right. I should get half a point for accuracy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I've I've been uh, looking at Renaissance-era instruments lately for some reason. Of course you have, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> no, of course a, you have. Like, there's <laughs> one... There's Some of really that stuff cool. should just stay inside. Should stay inside. <laughs> no, if you look at it, if you look at a Renaissance instruments lately, yeah. If you look at a picture of a sack <laughs> butt, what? you will recognize it from all the paintings of angels. You know, like playing their trumpets. It looks just exactly like that. I just want to give a shout out to the hurdy gurdy. It's a really cool instrument. I think it's fantastic. <laughs> so if if you want to hear some medieval music, look it up on YouTube. Gorgeous. Alan, uh, y- you stay on brand, and I love it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Rajiv, you were earlier shaking your head in judgment, so I'm going to let you go first, <laughs> or go next. Uh, yeah, I don't know if I can get past that whole medieval hurdy-gurdy. <laughs> it's a cool instrument. They like have a little like YouTube stuff. they have a little crank, so like one person cranks while the other person plays it. It's pretty cool. Okay, um, so <laughs> my word is oshios. How do you spell that? Oshios. O t i o s e. Oshios. So this is a state of meditation that can only only can happen when you are sitting um, at the edge of the ocean. I'm gonna say it's when you're when you're in a certain mood and you're acting crazy, you're doing something crazy. People will say you're oshios, like oshi, <laughs> like when you're watching medieval instrument playing on YouTube. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> you're gonna apologize to me when you listen. Look, to Alan, like, the dirty nerdy, looking at his dirty. <laughs> wow! Whoa, that was pretty good. <laughs> So creative. You know, when you say, oh, sheet. Because. Never mind. I tried for the dad humor. Dude, we, we have the affinity on the dad humor thing. <laughs> I know. That's just so like the totally random. <laughs> what? Oh, she. <laughs> um, I think it's what we're trying to get toward. It's like a, it's a unrealized like always out there within reach place space world where we're all free together so you made it a process word <laughs> no not really it's a it's it's what we call what we're waiting for mm. it's the condition typically suffered by West Coast surfers, where you've inundated yourself with so much meaningless philosophy that the only response you have to any thought is, whoa. <laughs> whoa. I would like to get a soundboard, Jeff, if possible, <laughs> like different little things. And I want to hear Owen Wilson go, Wow. <laughs> exactly. I was wow. thinking Owen Wilson, and I was particularly thinking of uh, of Keanu Reeves, like early '90s Keanu Reeves. Whoa! Yeah, that's pretty much uh, all we need, right? Yeah. So Casey's was actually the closest. So I'm gonna 
pick is. Yeah, thanks. It is being at leisure, idle, or indolent. See? Indolence. So kind of like the whole meditative thing, being at leisure, stillness. You were, so Casey you were still was, Casey such was in a there. fundamentalist, Rajiv. Like you, you went with the person who was closest to the right answer. I like it. <laughs> Mind your own business, I mean, Jeff. Thank you, Rajiv. I, I appreciate that. I, I, I wasn't going to go there, Jeff, but you're you're pushing me that direction. The others were uninspiring. So I, I went with accuracy. <laughs> Touche. Touche. <laughs> that was a hard one. Yeah, it was. I I thought it would be. I mean, coming after a couple of butts, it's you know. Right, I know. What are you going to do? It's just, it's all downhill from there. It truly is. You're rounding us out. You're. You know what? I I don't know why, but I feel like we've done these words before inside of Apple Dash, and I have that like, you know, that condition where you, like everyone looks familiar to you, even though you have never met them before. I'm getting that with these words. Like I feel like we've done sack butt before. I think it's because we have a proclivity when picking our own words to find the one that sounds the dirtiest. <laughs> and that's like, it's, it's the, it's Maybe a general feeling that, that feels that's similar. Definitely, right. look, uh, the, Delayed when I adolescence. Saw, exactly. Right. When right. I saw bum buzz, I was like, that's my word. That's it. <laughs> that's it. Right. So speaking of which, um, my word, <laughs> no, it's not that bad. My word is snickersnee. Snicker snee. One word. Spelling. S N I C K S N E E. Snicker snee. I think it's the it's what happens when you're laughing and you sneeze at the same time. You do a little snicker snee. <laughs> oh, that's cute. <laughs> yeah, that, that is, is cute. Good. It's the snicker that occurs when you open the door and accidentally witness somebody in there pooping. <laughs> <laughs> you snickersy. Snickersy. <laughs> oh my goodness. So so um there is a group of people who um who are devoutly committed to Snickers. And on October thirtieth, <laughs> the day before Halloween, they gather together and they take a knee. And they receive of their holy snicker, which is snickersnee. On the oh. eve of snickersnee. <laughs> oh, wait, wait. It's snickersnee? Yeah, snickersnee. Yeah, snickersnee. <laughs> oh, I thought it was snickersnee. I've got this cold, and so my hearing's kind of compromised. Or these allergies. Even though I spelled Shoot. it, but yeah, the cold, that's a good mm-hmm. excuse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm blaming it on the compromised hearing. I think a snickersnee is a kind of like hovercraft that you can ride like a like a skateboard sort of thing that you can ride all over town on a snickersnee. Snickersnee. Mm-hmm. Those are all good answers, but I am a sucker for a good narrative, so I'm going with Casey. Uh <laughs> <laughs> I like the story. I got you get an origin of the word, and I I love it. So Casey, you are the winner. Uh, that was good. That was good. Uh, so right now, just so you're aware, Casey's in the lead by one. Um, my word is cozen. C o z e n. Cozen. 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 So sometimes I like to swipe or slide into uh, guys' DMs and say, "You want to." 
cousin with me? <laughs> oh my goodness. It's Do you want to get cousin with me? <laughs> it's when you secretly go get a dozen donuts. Uh, go home, get under a, a warm snuggly blanket and eat them. Then you're cousin. Cousin. Yeah. I think it's an an old English word, cousin. And it is a it it is what we call a group of prehistoric squirrels. They're a cousin. I think you had Alan it, at squirrels. It, <laughs> I don't it, even, no, I it, love that because, like, you know, a murder of crows, a right. flock of geese, a cousin of squirrels. Oh my god! <laughs> it's it's also how new Indian immigrants say cousin. <laughs> 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 All right, know. Jeff, you got to beat a flock of squirrels. Uh, it is a, a lazy coven of witches. <laughs> That's good. Damn. That's good. Two good ones. Two to, good ones. I have to choose. Oh. That's really good, Jeff. That is really good. But... <laughs> I'm gonna go with Bonnie. She played. She played to form. She played to me. I think it's because it's about language and it's funny. Oh my god! All right, Bonnie, you get one. Thank you. I was hoping I wasn't gonna <laughs> lose the game completely. The only person without a point. No, we're not gonna say their name out loud. Um, <laughs> the person who won is Casey. Casey won. Yay! Well done. Look, I I don't normally win these things because I'm not fun. So I'm, I'm you're not this. fun. You're not I fun. Will take this is an honor. He's like, I'm not, not fun. I'm not fun. <laughs> what? what? I'm not fun. <laughs> Where did you get that you're narrative like the from? The funnest of everyone. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, all right. Well, on that, I think that'll do it for us this week. Uh, <laughs> if you found value in the show and would like to support it, check us out at irenicast.com slash support. And there you'll find all the ways you can support the show, including our PayPal link, uh, Amazon affiliate link, and our merch. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and never miss an episode. Uh, we're available on all major podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Pandora, and many more. While you're there, if your platform allows it, leave us a rating and or review. We're always looking for more and more ways to hear from you. So for this week, I'm Jeff. It's your boy, Alan. I'm Bonnie. I'm Casey. This is Rajiv. Thanks for joining the conversation. Thanks for joining the conversation.